Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and today for this Eyes on Conservation, we have none other than the one, the only, Serena Simons. How you doing, Serena? I'm great. I also really appreciate the way that you introduce people on the show. I appreciated the last introduction <laughs> that you did. <laughs> Sound That's like I'm... so nice. <laughs> it's so That's... nice of you. I really appreciate that. Well, I, I just want to do the best I can to make sure that everybody knows who the real experts are, which is no secret, not me. So, No, you're one of them for sure, dude. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You didn't know that? Oh. No, no. I'm just I'm just an enthusiastic cheerleader. That's really what it is. Um, and, and the feeling is mutual. Absolutely, absolutely mutual. And I'm really excited to jump into this interview that you did with Mark Elbrock. Um, why don't you tell listeners who this is, what we're going to be listening to? Yeah, Mark is amazing. And he the, the one thing that I really appreciate about Mark is he's so articulate. It's 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 kind of crazy. It's sort of like he knows how to talk to the public and talk to stakeholders, uh, all the things that we're going to talk about in the interview. He's really good at communicating with people and communicating um, all of his efforts and his research and and. I, I don't know, just from a management perspective, as someone who is a wildlife manager, everything that he said made a lot of sense. And I think it would make, make a lot of sense to people that don't know a lot about the subject. Um, so I was really impressed with him. Mark is a researcher. Um, he focuses on mountain lions or pumas, cougars, whatever you want to call them. And he has been working in this field for a really, really long time. So he's really gotten to know this species, um, their behavior, and a lot of the conflicts that come with them and living alongside a large carnivore like mountain lions. So he wrote an, he, he's written several books, but his most recent book is called The Cougar Conundrum. Um, and the cougar conundrum kind of outlines these bigger picture and with great examples, um, case studies and examples um, of basically the the history of our, you know, what he calls a conundrum, which I think is the best word to use, this huge problem um, that we have been experiencing in North America surrounding these animals for for hundreds of years. Um, so it's it's really it was great getting to talk to him. And I learned a lot, um, you know, not just reading the book, but also just talking to him. And again, he has a way with the way that he speaks that it just makes sense. And he's very measured. And yeah. I, I can just really tell that he, he has invested a lot of time, you know, working, trying to problem solve, but you have to, he, he's, he's the perfect person cause he is so measured and he, he listens. And I just think he's, he's the best possible person to do what he does. So I'm really excited to have you guys listen to our conversation. That's awesome. Um, yeah, he's very well-spoken and this book, if I'm not mistaken, you had a sneak peek at it should be coming out the day after this episode airs. Yes. So I got um, a sneak peek at it and I got to read it ahead of its release, which will be released on August 13th. So yeah, the day after this episode gets published um, and it will be available at any bookseller. Um, he mentions that it would be great if you know you want to contact your local bookshop, um, see if you can get a couple copies into the store, but it's also available online and you know wherever you normally get your books. Well, that sounds amazing, and let's just jump right into this interview.
why don't we start by you just introducing yourself, your name, and um, a little bit about <clears throat> your background. Sure. Um, my name is Mark Elbrock. I'm a father and a working biologist, and I live in Western Washington on the Olympic Peninsula, where I am part of a massive collaboration with five tribal nations to study mountain lions on the peninsula and how they cross the Interstate 5 corridor. Um, I also work for Panthera. I'm the director of the Puma program or mountain lion program, whichever word you prefer. Um, and so I help sort of create new projects, identify need, um, identify the conservation issues for mountain lions across their entire range. So we have projects ranging from up here in Washington state all the way down to the southern tip of South America. Wow. So it's a huge, I know Panthera is a huge organization. It's a global organization. I mean, and I know you probably get this a lot, but how did you, how did you get involved with Panthera and how did you get involved with mountain lions? Indeed, it's a, you know, it's all dumb luck, right? Um, Panthera is a, as you said, it's a global organization. We work to conserve wild cats and their landscapes around the world. You know, it's <laughs> how one ends up in doing what I do is it's sort of a circuitous journey. Um, one never really has plans, or at least if you do, they tend to go out the window and, and life happens. So I, I tell folks, because I get asked this a lot, you know, you must have always planned to be a mountain lion biologist and now here you are. And I say, absolutely not. You know, you, you have a plan, especially in the, in the field of wildlife. You know, you may have a goal. And what generally happens is an opportunity comes up and you decide to take it or you don't. So I, I really quite firmly thought I would be a black bear biologist or perhaps I'd study fishers, which I really loved, um, but that's not what happened. Instead, I got an opportunity to study mountain lions. And so I think the more interesting question is, why did I stick with them? Because it's now been sort of 20-ish years. And that that is a, a question worth pondering. Um, and there's a couple of reasons, I think. You know, one is that it's really hard. Uh, I enjoy the challenge. It's, it's unpredictable. I never know what's going to happen. It's hard physically to find them, catch them, study them, follow them. It's hard mentally to deal with people who love them, people who hate them, state agencies who are creating management plans for them. It's just challenging every day. And that keeps me engaged and enthused. And... Um, the other reason is that, you know, it's a species that, as I just said, you know, people either love or they hate. And there's very few folks that are sort of in the middle on mountain lines. And either way, that's passion. And passion provides opportunity to really engage with people and hopefully, you know, have an influence on the conservation of the species. That's so interesting that you said that about black bears. So I work with black bears up here in Lake Tahoe. All right. And when I was, you know, going through your book, I found so many parallels between uh, mountain lion conservation and management and black bear conservation and management. You know, it was like these keystone, large carnivore species, the, people have a lot of really big opinions about them, right? And like, yeah, like you said, they're either really excited about them or they hate them. And uh, trying to figure out how to make everyone happy is almost impossible. And I feel like oftentimes with my work is trying to figure out how to work with each other, the animals are suffering. 
So I, I, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's awesome. A tiny, tiny wee lad. I couldn't really imagine anything else, you know, doing anything else. I was catching animals by knee high and, and running around in the woods as much as I could. And yeah, I mean, I still absolutely love lots of wildlife. I could be completely happy watching ground squirrels all day. Um, and not to say that I don't feel a special connection with mountain lions, because I certainly do. But uh, that came over time, you know, it was through building a relationship with that species. That's amazing. So let's talk about your book a little bit. So your book is called The Cougar Conundrum. And I wonder for folks who are listening, who, you know, have probably a vague understanding of the politics involved with cougars across the world, you know, you know, it just mountain lion, big cats in general. Um, what, you know, what, what is the cougar conundrum? Like, why did you title your new book, the cougar conundrum? What's that about? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think the nutshell version is, is this, you know, they do mountain lions are like many large carnivores, tigers, brown bears, black bears, but they are distinctive as well. And when I think back, it's really this, we, we tried, you know, in this country, incredibly hard to wipe them out, to kill them, to destroy the mountain lion mega population across our entire country. And we failed miserably, in fact, in the West. Uh, and we, we did manage to, to wipe them out in the East, except for the Southern swamplands of uh, Florida. But, you know, then the world changed and we had an ecological enlightenment. We realized that carnivores are actually important. They're part of natural systems and American culture began to change along with the, the rest of the world. And we began to implement change in how we dealt with mountain lions. So we went from treating them like complete vermin, having paid bounties throughout their entire range for puma skins, skulls, etc. People actually employed to kill mountain lions full time paid for by federal governments, state governments, local game agencies, uh, sportsmen's clubs, all of these people were employing mountain lion hunters. And then suddenly, boom, they're offered some level of protection and they were transferred to a game species in most, well, well now all Western states except for Texas. And, and what that did was it limited the number of mountain lions that could be killed and it created sort of a management process, meaning that people who wanted to, to kill mountain lions, they couldn't just go do it anymore. They actually had to buy a license from the state and they were only allowed to kill, you know, one or two or whatever the license allowed. And they could only do it at certain times of year. And so it was pretty minimal protection. When you think of the scope of things, they were still killing mountain lions. They were just regulating the killing of mountain lions. But just that level of protection completely changed the world because all of a sudden, mountain lion population started to rebound. And this is uh, where I think we get to the conundrum and what is unique about mountain lions. They rebounded far more than I think anybody would have expected. And I think many, much more than most folks would have probably liked at the time. And suddenly we have mountain lions across the West. We don't really know how many were here before European settlement, so we can't really say how many there are today in comparison. But it seems like it's, you know, it's possible that we have as many mountain lions today in parts of the West as there ever were, and perhaps even more in some places, which we can get into later. But um, now we are faced with a conundrum. 
because we tried to wipe them out. We failed. We gave them some protection. Boom. They're all living in and around us now. And we really actually have to figure this out. How do we live with a, a predator, a large predator that is so successful? And this word I'll probably use again and again because it's important to consider when you think about mountain lions is that they are resilient. They can take a beating. You know, we persecute the heck out of mountain lions across much of their range, and yet they are able to bounce back if we let them. And that's important to really think about. And that's, I think, what surprised folks. We didn't realize how resilient they were. Yeah, when I think of mountain lions, I they're so mythical, almost. Like when I think about North America, and what the land looked like pre-colonialism. And, you know, the species that come to mind are like bison, brown bears in California, and mountain lions, you know, these these huge, like megafauna that are just symbols of wild, uh, untouched nature. And I can imagine it's really hard to advocate for a species that has that mythology and is also really hard to understand like you were saying it's being being a biologist for these species it's hard to track them it's hard to study them it it, it's hard to advocate for something that you still don't know a whole lot about absolutely so part of the problem in working with mountain lions or at least working with people and sort of trying to educate them or talk about the reality of mountain lions, their biology, what, how they respond to management, et cetera, is that, as you said, they're, they're sort of shrouded in mystery. And so there's all these gaps in our head about what we really know about mountain lions. And those gaps, of course, create opportunity for mythology to creep in and to fill the holes. And so there's just a ridiculous amount of mythology about mountain lions that still persists to this day. And I think, you know, quite unique to our country versus other countries with mountain lions is that, you know, a lot of our mythology is built on hunting mountain lions with hounds. And so much of what we think about mountain lions is what is described as the mountain lion cornered in a tree, cornered on rocks by hunting hounds. And that brief encounter with a mountain lion backed up, cornered, hissing, frothing on the defensive is what sort of gets conveyed in this mythology about mountain lions. And that is just a teeny weeny slice of what a mountain lion is. I mean, you back up any animal to a corner and that's what you get. Um, and so, you know, I think we, we do suffer that way. And so part of dealing with the conundrum, because the conundrum is really just a bunch of conundrums, part of that is, you know, figuring out what a real mountain lion really is. You know, what do we know about them? What don't we know about them? What is a mountain lion? Helping everyday people say, these are the facts about mountain lions and the rest is actually not true. Yeah, there was so. a, a section in the book where I, I forget who it was you were citing. But it, it was a hunter in like the 1800s and he was talking about how, and I was shocked by the, he was almost disappointed by how docile mountain lions were and he 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 had heard so many things about them and he he had built it up in his head that they were these ferocious you know hissing scary animals and and when he actually encountered them he was disappointed that they didn't live up to yeah. his expectations yeah that may have been teddy roosevelt you know, teddy roosevelt was... <laughs> yeah. that was the one and uh 
he he spent a lot of time hunting mountain lions. He had a real fascination for the animal, and he took a lot of time trying to document natural history of mountain lions because he just he became sort of a crusader for mountain lion natural history. He felt like they had been sort of misrepresented in the literature and and wanted to learn more about them. Ironically, you know, via hunting them with hounds. Um, and so witnessing that little bit of, of froth and spitting and hissing that they get in the tree, but he over and over again was like, yeah, these guys, you don't have to worry about them at all. I just walk up within 10 feet of them and shoot them. I never worry about it. And so it is, it is ironic. And, and, you know, as someone who's catches mountain lions for a living, um, I can speak to that as well. It's, they're incredibly docile. They're incredibly cautious. Um, they do absolutely everything to get away from you. You know, I've crawled into caves and bushes and all sorts of, you know, tiny little places under houses with mountain lions. I would never do that with a bobcat, but because <laughs> they are, you know, really unpredictable and aggressive. But mountain lions just want nothing to do with us. All they want to do is get away. Yeah. So I guess maybe you can talk a little bit about the the mountain lions in Patagonia and how that relationship with uh you know the locals there is sort of like the poster child for what we're trying to achieve up here and how how those dynamics are different down there and and the, the not necessarily the behaviors but i guess our human behavior around them is is very different yeah it's a great it's a great comparison you know that the story in Patagonia is unfolding as we speak. It's, it's so new that people are interacting with mountain lions as they are through tourism. So it's the only place in the world where you can go, pay money, actually walk in the field with mountain lions, wild mountain lions. No car, no rifle, just you, your camera, if you want to bring it, <laughs> your lunch. <laughs> And you spend time with a guide in the wild and you can get incredibly close, you know, so close that it, it is frightening at times to consider what could happen. But, you know, the reason I did bring it up in the book is because, it, as you said, it's, I think, is important to ponder because it's such a different model than we practice here in the United States. Um, in Chile, where I, I'm sort of focused some of the stories, they are a protected species. That does not mean that people aren't killing them. They are killing them fast and furious, and it doesn't matter. There's very little oversight uh, in the woods, so people just kill them in, in reaction to protecting sheep and livestock and for other reasons as well. But in Torres del Paine National Park in the southernmost Chile, they are doing this tourism. And this is a place where mountain lions have killed people historically. Um, there have still been attacks in you know, recent years in Chile. Not many, but they exist. And the reason I bring that up is that it's not like a place where they haven't experienced a negative interaction with, with pumas, as they call them there, because they do. They kill sheep all the time. You know, people are just as distrustful. Ranchers are just as anti-mountain lion um, as we are here in the United States. But they have decided to trust mountain lions enough to walk with them. And that's a choice. They don't carry arms. They go in the field and they spend time with them. And they're doing this. This is not infrequent. This is every day now. There are groups of people walking with pumas. And, you know, as someone who's studied mountain lions for a long time, most, you know, hardly ever getting to see them except when you, you know, catch them. 
to go down there, it is mind-blowing <laughs> to have a mountain lion in front of you and just to watch it like it's a buffalo in Yellowstone National Park. It's, it's incredible. And it just sort of clears your head because you have all these preconceptions about what a mountain lion is or what they do day to day or how they spend their time. And then you watch them and, you know, they're just hanging out, playing with their family, cuddling in a bed, running around, chasing their siblings. They're just cats being cats. It's, uh, it's just an incredibly powerful experience to have that kind of intimate window into the secret lives of mountain lions. And, you know, I do think it's something that should be instructive for us here in the United States, that that is possible, that mountain lions aren't different there. They're no different than here. Everything they do is just what I see here when I follow mountain lions in the United States. The difference is us. You know, the people there have made a decision to live with mountain lions in a different way. Uh, and here, you know, we do different things. And so, of course, when it's our choice, we can change our choice. We can make the change. The mountain lion will always be there. We'll always adapt. And yeah, it's a real, there is an opportunity to change how we live with mountain lions, a very real opportunity. Do you think there are any long-term repercussions to that kind of model, habituating big cats to be close to humans? And, and I, at least with black bears in this particular area where I work, there's a lot of generational knowledge that's passed down, I think. Um, you know, sows will teach their cubs certain things, and if they learn that humans are tolerable, to be around, you know, to get a food reward or, you know, th that we're just not scary anymore. Um, you know, that makes them more likely to enter residential areas or developed areas, that kind of thing. So do you see, do you see something like that happening with mountain lions? That's a great question. And so far, there's no evidence that that's true, but it is on everyone's mind, uh, including my own. It's, you know, we are working there in Patagonia with the, the ranches that are doing the primary tourism with the guides. We've been creating safety guidelines for distance from cat, behaviors, you know, not allowing curiosity, these kinds of things, because we're, we're trying to just be prepared. But at this point, there's absolutely no evidence. There's sort of three generations of cats that have been followed now, and the, the offspring of those that were followed before are no different than their mothers. And in the United States, that hasn't been shown as well, you know, that there's no evidence that when you are when cats begin to spend time around towns that they become a greater threat to people the concern is there i think it's a legitimate concern i'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned but it's you know we don't really give them a chance you know, to to kind of live with us uh, and so we have very little data to kind of either support or refute the idea that they would become habituated in a negative way but I can tell you there's no data to show that they do become habituated in that way. Not habituated like a bear in the sense that they start eating from our trash cans and, you know, visiting our kitchens and things like that. That just never happens in mountain lions. You might see them utilize a backyard as habitat, certainly, especially if there's deer and raccoons that they can hunt there. And so you're going to get probably more mountain lions living near people if they don't, you know, create barriers or whether those barriers are physical or either through some sort of negative stimuli, right? But, um, but they're just not like bears or coyotes or anything like that, or foxes. They're not going to start eating out of our garbage cans. That's never been shown anywhere. 
the closest thing I can think of is that, you know, where the Department of Transportation have these deer drop-offs, you know, when they, they pick up roadkill deer and they'll dump them in the same place over and over and over again. We have seen mountain lions kind of set up shop on some of these, you know, they'll visit them very frequently to, to scavenge and take the free food. But those are not near people, you know, those are sort of rural deer dumps. So that's the closest thing I can think of to any sort of habituation or change. But it's something to watch out for. And we have to find that balance. Yeah. And, and it, you mentioned how uh, resilient they are as a species and how they were able to come back from near eradication. And as, as a country, I mean, as, as a world, as planet Earth, we're just c- continuing to encroach on habitat, on wild spaces. And so... And, and you mentioned this in your book, it's, it's going to be the statistics of you being attacked or killed by a mountain lion are so low. You know, I think you mentioned dog attacks, uh, uh, you know, getting hit by a deer, you know, those kinds of things are way more likely, you know, but just in terms of just trying to understand and there's so many things that we don't know. It, so if we do have a case where we have more ecotourism of mountain lions, say that that does become something that we adopt in the United States. Um, you know, yeah, sort of like how we, how we have bison and Yellowstone and, and wolves are sort of becoming part of that conversation as well. Even if there are deaths related to that, it, it, it's still statistically going to be so low. And because there are so many of us, so many humans, right? Um, over the years, the trend in deaths is increasing because there are just so many more of us, right? So I feel like even even having that as a concern uh, and considering that model for other locations outside Patagonia, yeah. it, it would be worth it to to investigate that. Yeah, I think. I mean, I I certainly think it's worth exploring. Um, I think you know what I what I think of when you're listening to some of the stuff you're talking about is. It reminds me that there's, so there's risk, right, associated with being close to a mountain lion. And then there's perceived risk. And these are different. And so what I loved was there was a study done in Alberta, in Canada, on mountain lions, risk of living with mountain lions. And they compared it to risk of driving in a car. And, you know, almost the entire... (laughs) group of people surveyed, hundreds and hundreds of people said that it is far more risky to be in, you know, in a mountain lion habitat than it is to drive a car. When, I mean, the facts are unbelievable. You know, a hundred people die a year in cars in Alberta, and there has only been one person killed by a mountain lion in a hundred years, you know? Um, so it's what people think is risky versus what is, is important to address as well. And so part of that is just kind of correcting the mythology and and getting to it. But I do wonder, you know, getting back to what you're bringing up with tourism, if there were ever a negative interaction in a tourist situation, like a guided viewing of mountain lions, let's just say that there was something terrible happened. Even if it was caught someone's jacket and, you know, sliced his jacket open, didn't even touch skin, I think that would be enough to just shut down the system, honestly, um, because fear is so pervasive and and this perceived risk is so great. And, you know, when you think about the, the United States, you know, how we are a society built around litigation, 
And so perceived risk is, is something that we need to contend with. So state agencies, for instance, mu much of their management is with this idea that you can't actually allow for a certain level of risk because it would open them up to litigation if something were to happen. And, and so you see, for instance, decisions of, we're not gonna move this mountain lion um, that just killed one chicken because what if it killed another chicken? Would that chicken owner sue us because we moved a chicken, moved a mountain lion that we knew had killed a chicken before? So they just generally are not willing to even try. Um, the same thing with any mountain lion that poses even a perceived risk to human beings. They would never move it, allow it to live um, because of this idea that if they did, and what if something happened, even if it's incredibly unlike, unlikely, just the idea that they had allowed it to happen might allow them to be sued for creating that circumstance on the landscape. And in our country, I mean, it's just a reality that that, that will happen. <laughs> People will sue as they already have over perceived risk and real risks of mountain lions. Um, you can see in California, it's happened several times where people have sued counties in California because they didn't have enough signs up to say that mountain lions were present in a park where there was an attack. I mean, this is a, a level of you know, craziness in many ways that is difficult to comprehend that, you know, should the state agency be responsible for knowing where mountain lions are all the time? Absolutely not. That's impossible and ridiculous. Um, and should there be, where's the shared responsibility? If, if you're a hiker, a mountain biker, a family going on a picnic, and you choose to go in woods that have mountain lions in it, what is your responsibility as, a, as the hiker or the family versus the responsibility of the agency responsible for caretaking natural resources for the public good? Um, you know, personally, I think that the hiker and family should carry some responsibility, just as the livestock owner should. But there are those who would disagree and, you know, feel like the state agency should, I don't know, control all animals as if they're in some sort of circus. But uh, I've heard is, that. I've heard that. World. I've heard that argument about sharks as well and uh, monitoring sharks. And if you have a shark that you're monitoring that this agency has decided we are responsible for this shark. We are responsible for this mountain lion. We are responsible for this individual animal. And that animal does something. Then, yeah, you're, that agency is responsible for either the death or the injury or whatever played out in that encounter. They're responsible. But then I hear, you know, with, with my line of work, I also think, wow, you know, it would be so awesome and so helpful if I had all the bears in my area collared, you know, I, I, I like Yosemite. Yosemite is a great example of that. Yosemite has a, a really good handle on their bear population. They've got a lot of bears collared. They're able to intervene very quickly when a bear passes a certain perimeter that they've breached and they're able to haze quickly. And, but I understand, you know, th there's totally different, totally different species, totally different behavior. But I mean, what would you say to that kind of thinking of if we do collar or track or monitor or have a, have an idea of, of all of, all of these individuals, isn't that 
a better way to understand a population? So, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things I'll talk about there. There's, in, it has happened. This is an actual approach that California uses when mountain lions are near bighorn sheep. They actually try to catch and, and monitor individual mountain lions so that they can determine whether they're killing endangered bighorn sheep in the Sierra Nevada. And it used to be down in the south as well, the desert bighorn population. And so that's being, you know, utilized for sheep, not for people. But that, you know, and then they have a three strike rule. And, you know, with people, you know, it does remind me of an anecdote. So, you know, when as a researcher, you you remember these days. So we we used what was called VHF colors or very high frequency, and they they function like a radio, right? You go out in the field, you turn on your receiver, you you tune to the radio station you want to listen to, and you can hear beeps if it's nearby. And that would be an individual mountain lion. Very hard to follow animals like that because you had to find them. <laughs> and so people use planes to follow mountain lions so that they could locate them once a week if they were lucky. But they were constantly disappearing, you know, as a researcher trying to follow them, then you would lose them for weeks at a time because, you know, they go over a mountain range and you can't hear them anymore unless you get a plane in the air. So when we started using GPS colors, the first one that came out was, was an Argus satellite system. And we started getting locations of where these animals were while the collars on the cat. It, I mean, it was revolutionary. And suddenly we we're able to see where they are. And one of the first cats that was collared uh, on a project I worked on in Southern California in, in Eastern San Diego County decided to kill a deer right next to a Boy Scout camp filled with children, 150 children just a couple of hundred oh yards boy. from you know, a place where they could play. And oh my gosh, you know, what a decision. The discussions amongst the team, do we tell the state because they'll kill the cat instantly? It's just eating a deer, but what if, are we responsible for telling those children? What if something happens? Would we be liable? Um, it was, you know, a crazy time. And I was not... The person in charge at the time, I was, you know, the field tech catching and finding. And so I'm grateful it was not my decision uh, because it was tough. But the decision was made to remove the collar. The, the researcher in charge wanted nothing to do with that. He was like, I don't want to know where cats are. We'll, sw we'll switch it out to a GPS call that just stores data. So when we get the collar back, you know, and whenever time it is, we'll say, oh, gosh, he was right next to the Boy Scout camp. That's you know, that's crazy, but we wouldn't know it when he was there. And uh, so it was a way of dodging the bullet. Um, that was back in 2000, you know, early 2000s that this was happening, mid 2000s. And since that time, I know that, you know, the state of California and other Western states have had to deal with this. I remember when I was, you know, applying for permits, one of the agreements as a researcher you would make is anytime a cat was within, you know, several hundred meters of anything human, a house, you know, some sort of barn or whatever, you had to inform the state. But even that got kind of crazy. The state really didn't want to know these things because then they had to decide what to do about it. And so then states were like, yeah, please don't tell us. And then I believe there has been a legal precedent now sort of has gone through some sort of legal process to say, you know what, states cannot be responsible for their mountain lions. It's crazy. Um, they're wild animals. They make their own decisions. And they're 
is no longer the expectation that researchers are just like feeding the state's locations every time they pass within you know 200 meters of a house or something because i mean these these projects in suburban areas that's all the time and uh, you know, there are people's backyards all the time and instead there's generally now the requirement of a researcher is just to let the state agency know if there's a depredation of some kind so if you have a a mountain lion you're following it kills a goat or a dog or something like that you're you report it right away but most states are generally okay with letting the cats just be cats and assuming that everything's okay unless something isn't The conundrum is like, if, if I if I understand right, um, is kind of like the times and like what is what is the extent to which you protect this animal versus protect the humans that are around it? Am I right? That's one of them. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. And and that's probably the main. Yeah, I'd say that that's the main thread running through this conundrum is the 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 risk of having these animals close to people around people because there are so many more of us now than there were right you know when Europeans made contact um, and so a lot has changed but you know the the thread of this is okay so we're we're managing the risk of living with and around these animals but then also recognizing that there's a huge reward when we do that and we we start learning more about their behavior of a species that is so elusive and so shrouded in mystery right. and has so much misinformation attached to it you know when we when we start to just accept that this is a a reality of um, and, and mountain lions exist all over, you know, the United States. So it's not just certain areas Their 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 ranges have expanded and they're so adaptive. And, um, so, so more and more people in more and more areas are having to deal with them. And it's about mm. making a conscious decision. Um, you know, are we going to walk with these animals? Are we going to meet them in the middle? Are we going to do what we can as humans, um, you know, to, to make their lives easier? Um, and if we do decide that we want to buy into having mountain lions as part of our everyday landscape and recognizing that we, um, you know, we need to respect them and there's all kinds of things tied to that, then maybe we can coexist. So he outlines, he's, he's great about outlining all of the problems with both sides of that, you know, um, people, ran, you know, ranchers, homeowners, um, owners of small dogs. And he, and he has two kids of his own. So he yeah. recognizes, you know, he's going to hike differently in the backcountry with his kids than he would by himself. Or, you know, right. maybe he wouldn't go hiking by himself. Maybe he'd hike in groups and just right. doing anything that he can and trying to share that message that, you know, we, we're all kind of in this and we have to just right off the bat, if, if everyone can just acknowledge that, um, you know, it is a it is a coexistence um, rather than we live here and the mountain lions are encroaching on us. You know, we really have to work better with um, the wildlife that's in our backyards.
Um, so uh, talking about behavior, I wondered if you could, there's a whole section in the book where you, you have these great bullet points of facts about mountain lions. Oh, yeah. And after that list of bullet points, you basically say every one of these well-known facts, quote unquote, is false. So I wondered if you could talk about your favorite false fact about mountain lions and why, you know, just in, just in general, what are, what are some, some incorrect quote unquote facts that, that we all seem to think about these animals? That's great. Uh, gosh, there's a, there's a lot of misinformation. A lot of it, you know, that I deal with is more about how aggressive they are and how prone to uh, initiate aggression or sort of negative interactions they are, whereas the opposite is so true. I would describe them as, you know, the words that come to, to mind for me are cautious. They're incredibly cautious and they avoid conflict at every opportunity. They, you know, people think that they're born, they have kittens every year and so they can reproduce, reproduce really quickly. That is not true. They, on average, have kittens every other year. And that the sort of the duration between litters really appears that what I believe is happening right now is that it's related to mating opportunities. So if a female meets a male and is able to reproduce again, she'll kick her kittens out younger. And so you'll see a shorter interval between litters. Whereas if there are less males about, less opportunities to mate, they, they'll stay with their mother sometimes close to two years before they disperse to set out uh, on their own. There's all sorts of, you know, sort of misinformation about when they mate, how they mate, all this stuff. The, the, some of those facts I remember that I included in the book, these are all taken from pages on expert opinion on mountain lions, um, that kittens have incredible survival rates. Like for instance, it said 99% of kittens survive, uh, when in fact, there's actually, you can count the number of projects ever conducted that have looked at kitten survival on one hand. It's just not something we know a lot about, but kitten survival definitely is not high. Um, in Yellowstone, sort of the greater Yellowstone region where I worked for years, our kitten survival was about 30% would make it to 18 months old, or maybe even 25%. It was abysmal. And it was shocking and eye-opening. And when we actually incorporated that in information into models that predict the sort of sustainable sustainability of the population, how long it can persist, when you add in the kitten survivorship, suddenly this population's in trouble. If you pull it out, if you didn't know, and you only looked at adults and subadults, and they seem to be surviving okay, you say, oh, this population's fine, everything's good but we didn't understand why there were less mountain lions every year, you know, in our study area. But suddenly when we added that information about kittens, we we're like, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. And this is part of the reason we're seeing the decline in the population. So that's important to know. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things, it's, it's no cakewalk, you know, there's, it's hard to be a kitten. There are threats, other things can kill you. You can starve. Uh, frostbite is common in the far north or the extreme cold areas. They have to survive all through that. There's natural disease. We found plague is a big issue for cats in Wyoming where I worked. Um, you know, and then there's the competitors, there's wolves, there's bears that are killing kittens. And then, boom, you think you've made it. You've made it to 18 months old. You leave your mother and wow, now life got 
even harder because you have to navigate a landscape filled with highways, these goats and sheep that are in people's backyards that look so easy to kill um, and look tasty and you don't know, really know where the deer are anyway because you're just navigating the landscape. So your life gets harder and then finally you establish a new range if you survive that long, which is such a small percentage of mountain lions actually survive to 18 months and then survive the full dispersal period to set up their own territory on the landscape. At which point you're not safe because hunting is the leading cause of death for Western mountain lions everywhere. Uh, and even in, un in populations where there's no hunting, people are still the leading cause of death because of roadkill, uh, you know, meaning vehicle strikes, they strike mountain lions trying to cross highways, poison, uh, habitat fragmentation, all these other indirect effects of humans on the landscape, poaching, etc. So it really is not an easy thing to be a mountain lion. And people sort of just assume that these predators are out there, you know, they're killing machines, it's so easy for them, we need to control their numbers, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think I would emphasize that it is quite the opposite, that these animals are challenged at every turn. It is not easy to be a mountain lion, certainly in the United States. Um, and it's not going to get any easier as we move forward, as we build more houses and more infrastructure and more highways and extract more natural resources, et cetera. It's only getting harder for mountain lions, which, which does bring me to one more thing. A lot of people assume this sort of killing machine model for mountain lions. They're born, they just turn them loose. They're just going to start killing everything. And, and that's one of the things we've really learned as well is that they have to refine their skills. They have to learn how to hunt. They have to refine them even as they age. They change what they hunt and how they hunt until they're well established in a territory and even then will continue to refine their hunting and change what they hunt as they age. And that, that just flies in the face of everything we thought we knew about this species. So it goes on and on. Uh, all that stuff is it's, it all seem, new. It seems like most of the these pervasive myths about them are to the advantage of people who don't like them, right? Like having 99% kitten success, you know, that means, oh, well, we can we can kill them because they have such, they're, they're so successful. And even their, their body size, their home ranges, their, um, just everything about their behavior. And then all these myths about their biology as well. It just seems like every, yeah. all of these myths are, are, are just built to make us feel a certain way about them. Absolutely. And that reminds me of two more really important ones I'll bring up is one is that mountain lions are all the same. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, the mountain lions are as individualistic as we are. Some are great mothers and so raise lots of kittens across their lives. Others are horrible mothers and never successfully raise a kitten to adulthood. And so you think of the impact on a local population of removing a bad mother versus a good mother. I mean, it's a big difference on the number of mountain lions on the landscape. Some mountain lions are more social than others. I mean, they vary in every way. Some are just really playful mothers. Others are like these stern mothers that are constantly like knocking their kittens and getting them into shape. Um, it's, you know, it just varies in every way, how they treat you when you come up to them, um, how they react to people, how they react to a, a camera that I put on the landscape, all different. Uh, and then the last sort of myth that you hear over and over again is that they're solitary. Um, and the 
the word solitary is a little bit loaded because we it means one thing in the English language, meaning kind of alone, right? And then it means another thing for biologists. So the biological definition of solitary really right now emphasizes that an animal forages alone. And that is true. Mountain lions hunt alone. You don't see packs of mountain lions getting up and saying, okay, I'll stay here in this bush. You circle around to the elk, push it towards me, and I'm going to leap out and grab it. That We have no evidence that that is happening for mountain lions at this point. Um, maybe one day, but at this point, we don't think that occurs. Uh, but one thing that really has come to light in recent years is how often and how frequently they interact with their neighbors, um, adults hanging out with each other, females with kittens hanging out with females with kittens. And so you'll get these groups of eight, nine mountain lions together around a kill. Usually it's, uh, it often is around food, most interactions, but that males are constantly visiting the females in their ranges. And sort of the whole social organization of the species is, is really, again, sort of just turning everything we thought we knew about it on its head. And, and I, what really sparked me to mention these two things was what you said, because when you think that mountain lions are all the same and that they're these solitary killing machines, it's really much easier to manage them lethally. You know, oh, they're all the same. So what happens if we kill 10 of them? It's gonna be fine. You know, what happens when you kill 20? You just remove 20 and it doesn't matter because they're all the same, right? It doesn't matter which 20 you take, just take 20. Um, when that's not true. If you kill territorial males, that has a different impact on the population than if you take subadult females, you know. It, it makes a difference if you kill the good mother versus the bad mother. And the other thing is, of course, that they're not solitary, which, you know, it's easy for us to, when you think of like public outreach and sort of just building tolerance for the species and helping people fall in love with them, it's, it's great to say, yeah, they're solitary, they're killing machines, you know, they're all the same, uh, so that people kind of disconnect from the species. But the second you start saying they have rich family lives, they cuddle, they spend a tremendous amount of time playing with each other, cuddling with each other, taking care of each other, um, and that if you see these windows into their life, that they're doing it all the time, that neighbors are hanging out with each other once in a while, they're not, it's not kumbaya and they're not holding hands or anything, but they tolerate each other really close, they share food frequently, um, it again, it just challenges this idea that they are not an animal with that is intelligent, um, to use words that you often hear wildlife advocates use, they often call them a sentient being, but they are an intelligent animal that feels pain, that has families, that is integrated into a social network, a social organization on the landscape, and it is a real impact when you kill one on the community. Um, these are just facts. This is not me with an agenda. It's just saying this is the way it is. You know that uh, if we hunt mountain lions, we just have to acknowledge that there are impacts of doing so. And of course, this is true for, for most wildlife. Um, they're not just you know static pieces of broccoli. And I, I know there are people out there who feel that broccoli have a soul as well, and I'm not challenging that, you know, I'm just saying that, you know, that that's kind of how we view wildlife is if, if they're all the same, you can just harvest the crop, new crop comes up, harvest it again, um, sort of an old fashioned uh, sort of approach to wildlife. And it's just not true. It's not true for mountain lions. It's not true for many animals. Anyone who owns a dog or a cat knows that they have a personality. And uh, 
And that's of course true of wild animals too. I think that's so interesting, the way that we have chosen to cherry pick the way that we anthropomorphize them. So I'm thinking of America, pre-colonial, and, and the mindset of Europeans at the time was, you know, manifest destiny, conquer, take, um, establish. And, and just thinking about if you were a mountain lion, and and you were a human at that time thinking, well, if I was this, I had these claws and these teeth and I was this powerful animal, I'm of course I'm going to be a killing machine, right? Like if I were that, that's what I would do. I would just, you know, wreak havoc and destroy everything because that's what people were doing at the time. That's what humans were doing at the time. And now we have a different understanding of sort of what it means to be human. And and we have changed our mindset over the years too. And I think being able to see not only mountain lions, but other species, yeah, as, as, as being individuals, as having family units and family connections and, and these, these things that we value as humans now, I think as society that's changed a lot. So I'm hoping you know, down the road, as we start to have a better understanding of what it be, what it means to be human, and we're animals, right? Like we'll understand better what it means for other animals and and their behavior. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I, you know, one of the things I'd like to just sort of follow up and build upon what you said is that it is amazing how we've changed in the last hundred years or more, and what we think about wildlife, how we integrate with wildlife, at least in our country. And I'll just say sort of the Northern Hemisphere to kind of more broadly geographically think about it. Whereas many countries in the South, the Southern Hemisphere, they have a different relationship with wildlife and they always have. And so they they have a different tolerance for predatory wildlife versus sort of the ones that they use for food or prey of species versus cattle. And it is fascinating to compare and to think about the sort of northern perspective of wildlife versus southern. And southern hemisphere has always been more tolerant. They sort of speak about wildlife and natural resources as that they are part of it, that they are integrated within the natural system. Whereas here in the north, I feel like that's something we're only beginning to kind of realize. I mean, certainly we had an ecological you know, sort of enlightenment in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 1900s. You know, Aldo Leopold stopped shooting wolves, started, you know, protecting them. Rachel Carson bringing to light, you know, sort of our, what we're doing to the world at large. There was tremendous change in American society and global society in the North at the time to recognize the importance of recognizing that humans are part of natural systems. But really, that's, we're still in transition. We're still you know, that's one thing to kind of articulate it. It's another to live that way. And we just haven't made it there as far as, um, and I honestly, to put it bluntly, I don't think we're as developed as many of these uh, countries that are in the Southern Hemisphere in terms of our understanding of humans in a natural system. But I think what is really important to emphasize is that even though American culture has changed, the state wildlife management system has not. And that, I think, is one of the things that is important to articulate and to understand. 
And so we have a system that was established in the late 1800s. And, you know, George Bird Grinnell, who was the father of the Audubon Society, which tanked as he built it and then was restarted by incredible, powerful women and is now the successful model it is today. But um, back then, you know, he worked with Teddy Roosevelt sort of as his mentee and said, Teddy, you know, if you ever have the chance or what we should be building is a state wildlife management system that is a business model and that we're going to have clientele who are hunters. And that's the way we're going to run wildlife in this country. And I don't want to de-emphasize the power of these people back then, but they were politically connected, wealthy white men who built our wildlife system. And it was awesome, amazing. They turned wildlife des devastation around um, in a matter of sort of three decades. It was an amazing system and it was a completely flawed system. You know, it was one that had a clientele and therefore for the last 120 years, we have prioritized hunters and anglers over everybody else. We have prioritized politics over the health of natural systems. We have prioritized maintaining a happy clientele with a population of species that they can hunt, fish, and sustainable take and sustainable populations of these hunted populations. And that's all fine and good in some ways, but it is only a tiny slice of natural resource management. And if the American people have changed, which we just agreed has happened, why haven't we integrated that change into our state wildlife management? And that's where we're at today is this incredible sort of um, inertia in state wildlife management and in federal to adopting a more inclusive approach to wildlife management and, and to instead of saying wildlife management, emphasize wildlife conservation. And so that we actually are thinking about ecosystems with humans very much as part of those ecosystems because we're reliant upon them for our own health, our own happiness, our communities, our families, and recognizing that to build healthy, healthy communities of people, we need healthy communities of animals, and other natural systems, trees, plants, this nitrogen cycle, all of these things are part of us, you know, part of our own health. And so that we build a conservation management plan for mountain lions that includes that perspective and includes all the people who are not hunting mountain lions mm -hmm. in that decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And I am not trying to disclude hunters. They are vital. They play a, a wonderful role in supporting conservation in our country, but they are less than 5% of the adult population in the United States. The other 95% should be able to have a larger say in how we deal with our natural resources and certainly in how we deal with mountain lions. And that's what I would really love to see happen moving forward. I mean, talk about conundrum it, it's it's a huge conundrum and and that's just the greatest word for it and i'm i'm glad that you decided to title your book that because uh, it there's so many moving parts so many agencies so many stakeholders so many opinions and like you said at the beginning so much passion um so we mm -hmm. you know we talked a little bit about and and we're just 
grazing the surface here on on all of these issues. So listeners can go check out Mark's book when it's out and and learn more about the the more intricate conundrums. But where are some where are some solutions? Where are some cougar solutions that you've thought about and are maybe being implemented right now in the United States and across the world? Yeah, that that's a great question. So I mean what you know, I sort of, as a researcher, as a mountain lion biologist, what I've been trying to do is, you know, what works and what doesn't, and is there evidence for either? And so I think there are a lot of things we could do quite simply, you know, to build um, sort of better relationships with mountain lions in our backyards. And, you know, one of the things I'd love to see is people who own a goat or two or a couple of sheep or a dog or a cat that they begin to participate in shared responsibility for their own animals. I personally believe that we need to do away with our current depredation system. You know, the fact that I can own two goats in my yard, a mountain lion comes and kills one because I left them out in my backyard on the edge of the wood line, not protecting them at all, just tied them up there. Mountain lion comes in and I'm like, I'm angry in the morning. So I call the state. So public money is now being used to follow, track that animal down and kill it. No questions asked. I would love to see a system where state agencies and perhaps supplemented by wildlife advocacy groups. For instance, there's been a great example of that in California with the Mountain Lion Foundation and National Wildlife Federation helping to pay to build infrastructure to protect livestock. But states should be paying for it. Fed should be paying it. They should be supplementing the building of infrastructure, not just the destruction of wildlife. And people who don't take precautions to protect their wildlife, why should we be spending tax money on killing animals that are part of natural systems because they didn't take care of their two goats? That's crazy to me. I mean, that's something that we really need to change quickly, in my opinion. Um, So there's just one thing, but that's building sort of a level in your backyard. So getting people to engage you know, that's, again, just focusing on the engagement part, people need to jump in. I, you know, it's something I emphasize again and again in, in this narrative is that I can't believe how many people, you know, claim to, to love mountain lions, to want to protect them, et cetera. And all they do is they go on Facebook and, you know, they click a frown emoji, you know, it's not participation. We actually need people to get involved in wildlife conservation and management, engaging with their state agency, learning the name of their local warden. All of these things are critical to actually building an inclusive wildlife conservation plan. So there's that. Um, there's, of course, education and building tolerance. We need to change how we uh, do research on mountain lions and how we fund it. We need to change the entire funding structure for state wildlife management. That, I believe, is absolutely critical and probably one of the best things we could do for conserving mountain lions and and many other species as well, is to diversify the funding sources for state wildlife agencies so that we have a diverse and a group of people investing in state wildlife management so that the, quote, clientele of state wildlife management suddenly becomes this massive diverse group of people with all sorts of interests, opinions, et cetera. And everyone should be included. I, I honestly believe in the democratic process, which is you know, shocking to emphasize that I believe everyone has an opinion. And I think that's okay. It's, it's okay to not like mountain lions. It's okay to value livestock over mountain lions. 
but it is equally valid for those who say, no, it is more important to protect the mountain lion, etc. And that if we represent all people equally, proportionally even, <laughs> you know, it should go extreme, but uh, we would see radical change in how we deal with large predators and wildlife conservation more broadly. We can do things to, to protect ourselves, to protect our, our pets, to protect our children. There's just common sense things you do when you live in mountain lion country. I go over some of that stuff for folks who want details, but everything from you know, walking with children. I have tiny children. My, my boys are, I have twin boys that are almost five. And you know, I, you walk in mountain country with small children in the backcountry differently than you do uh, without, you know, small children with you. So it's just the reality of living with mountain lions. You have to be different. Um, you have to acknowledge that they are predators and respect them and live differently. And I know most folks are just absolutely angry when I ask them to change their life to accommodate a mountain lion that lives on the mountain behind them. You know, some people believe that is just the most ridiculous thing to ask of them, but I am asking, <laughs> please, for people to accommodate wildlife, to meet them halfway, to make changes, to protect their children, to protect their pets, to not do stupid dumb things, to not go jogging at dawn and dusk with earphones in, with a hoodie up so they can't see. That's just, that really is foolish in mountain lion country. Um, you know, meet the animal halfway, you know, and uh, protect your livestock, of course, get involved in state wildlife management. Um, we can, of course, we need to assess the impact of hunting. Uh, right now we hunt, we, we hunt, we hunt, we hunt, and we hunt hard. And we're actually, it's just a mountain of evidence that continues to grow that seems to show that the more we hunt mountain lions, we're actually creating conflict because we're creating we're totally changing the age structure of mountain lion populations, the sex structure. And so you get a lot of youngsters running around and they're the ones who kill sheep and goats, pets, who walk up on people on trails because they're naive, just trying to figure out life, they're hungry. And it's these young hungry cats that do foolish things. And by hunting mountain lions, we are making more young naive mountain lions on the landscape. So I, it's, Again, it, people don't want to hear this. They think that hunting is the solution. It, it is not necessarily the solution to living with mountain lions. We actually need to hunt them less. It doesn't mean we can have to stop hunting. You know, I, I also want to recognize and appreciate the role that hound hunters in particular have played in mountain lion conservation in the last 50 years. They are a force to be reckoned with. When the elk and deer hunters stand up and say, kill all the mountain lions, it is the hound hunters who stand up and fight them. And so it's not that we need to wipe out hunting. So on the one hand, I'll just say we don't need to hunt them. They don't need to be controlled. They control themselves. But we don't need to wipe out hunting if we want to maintain some of the benefits of hound hunters and the roles they play in society today. And so I guess I've just rambled a lot. But the last thing I'll just close with is that I really... Again, going back to this idea that everyone has an opinion and it's valid, if we could just get beyond fighting on social media and actually work together, I think we'd find common ground and we could build not just an inclusive conservation plan for mountain lions, but one that actually works for all people. And uh, 
that may be wrong. I won't say it will work for all people. I'll say that one that at least everyone has bought into because I think this is important to emphasize is it's not the it's not the goal. I have no prescriptive like this is what we need to do to get to mountain lions or this is the level of hunting, et cetera. It's more getting a community to be involved in the process. If everyone participated, I think that we would be light years ahead of ourselves where we are now. That's what I'm wanting to see in the United States is to, and Canada and all, you know, in any country really is get all people to participate in the decision-making process and the creation of conservation plans so that all people have buy-in to that process. Of course, not everyone will be happy with the outcome that spits out at the end of a process like that, but at least they can recognize that they shared their opinion, they were heard, they participated, and they understand how the outcome was reached because of the process in which they participated in. If we could get there, mountain lions would thrive, and in truth, I think we would thrive too. Very well said, seriously. Well, thank you so much. I, I really want to um, thank you for taking the time. And where can folks go to learn more about your work and also when and how can folks um, get access to your book? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, please, yeah, keep in touch. Um, you can find everything that Panthera does about mountain lions is on panthera.org, O-R-G, so Panthera, just like the heavy metal band, except it's the genus for most big cats. So panthera.org, you can look up by species, etc. see what we're doing. We do have a Facebook page that you can look for the Panthera Puma program. It used to be called the Teton Cougar Project. So it, if you search for those, you'll find us. Um, I have a personal website, which is just my name.com, markelbrock.com. I try to update it every so often and <laughs> keep up with that. And, uh, you know, the book should be available anywhere you can buy books. So you can ask your local bookstore. That would be great to, to order one for you. Put one on the shelf would be fantastic. But, of course, all the online bookstores will, will carry it as well. It, it comes out on the 13th of August. Thank you so much, Mark, and uh, looking forward to hopefully having another future conversation with you and getting some some updates about how, how the world of mountain lions is going. Wonderful. I'd love it. Uh, well, Serena, this was a an awesome interview. Uh, really enjoyed listening to that. It's Mark Elbrock, and the book is The Cougar Conundrum coming out on August 13th. Serena Simons, thank you so much for bringing this to us. Thanks, Greg. It's always a pleasure to be on the show, and I hope, uh, you know, listeners learn something. I certainly did, and I'm looking forward to seeing more about what Mark's up to and the work that he's done and um, just learning more about mountain lions because we really don't know that much. This episode of the podcast was produced by me, Serena Simons, and our music today was by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Gregory Haddock, he's awesome, and to Mark Elbrock for taking the time to talk to us today. We've recently had some new interest in the podcast and some new patrons as well. 
If you'd like to support the work we do here at the Wildlands Collective and help us continue making content and bringing awesome shows to you, you can go to patreon.com slash wildlandscollective. If you'd like to see photos of Mark as well as resources mentioned in this episode, you can go to our show notes page at wildlandsinc.org slash eoc206. Thanks for tuning in.